Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor of the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, where we continue to shelter in place and work from home amid the ongoing Omicron crisis, which of course pales in comparison to the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. As I speak to you on this side of the world, the leaders of the EU are fast asleep on theirs. But when they wake up on this Friday, they'll be preparing for two historic conference calls, first with China's Premier Li Keqiang and the next with China's President Xi Jinping. Finbar Birmingham has been tracking the intense series of phone calls between Brussels and Beijing in the lead-up to these meetings. Where it's expected the leaders of the EU are going to directly call on Xi Jinping to use his influence to bring an end to the civilian slaughter and destruction inflicted by Russian forces in Ukraine. Finbar's got a preview for us about why these calls may just be the historic turning point for Europe's relationship with China. And with the economic powerhouse that is Shanghai currently in lockdown, Li Keqiang and Xi Jinping may just be about to discover Europe has limits for what it will tolerate for the Beijing-Moscow relationship we are repeatedly told has no limits. And we're going to hear from our Beijing diplomacy expert Xi Jinping. He's been following the meetings in China's Anhui province, where Foreign Minister Wang Yi met with foreign ministers of all the nations that border Afghanistan, including Russia, but with the pointed exclusion of India. We'll find out what this reveals about Beijing's diplomatic push to nations in Asia, Africa and Latin America amid the concerns of the reputational damage this no-limits relationship with Russia is inflicting on China. And finally, we're headed to Tokyo. You may have missed it, but just recently talks to end the war between Japan and Russia collapsed over the issue of Ukraine. What was that, you ask? A war? It was the Second World War, back when Soviet forces snatched back a number of islands to Japan's north. You may have missed this, but senior editor Peter Langan didn't. He's going to tell us how Japan's sanctions on Russia get very complicated when it comes to its multi-billion dollar investment in natural gas refining facilities on those particular islands. Also, there's that other issue of Shinzo Abe calling for Japan to host nuclear weapons on its soil. There's a lot to talk about this week. Let's get to work. He's just got off the train and walked into the European Council where he's in the press room. It's going to be a very big day for you, Finbar. You've got a cold and some dodgy Wi-Fi there, but we're going to get through this. Tell us, you've been tracking the discussions in the lead-up to this very important series of calls today. What have you learned? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out in, in reality. Um, it's just gone 
10, 13 here in Brussels. It's snowing today. I don't know whether that adds any uh, symbolism to the occasion, but, uh, you know, it's the 1st of April. April Fool's Day, it's snowing, and we have the first EU-China summit for two years. So the talks have just kicked off about 15 minutes ago. We've got three European Union leaders, Ursula von der Leyen, the President of the Commission, the President of the Council, Charles Michel, and the uh, Foreign Affairs Chief, Joseph Borrell. They're speaking with Li Keqiang now. Uh, in four hours, they would speak with President Xi Jinping for about an hour, quite a short one. And I think that the main point that they're going to be impressing on China is the economic cost of providing any sort of support to the Russians in their invasion of Ukraine, be that militarily, be that overtly financially, or be that through assisting uh, Russia circumventing sanctions. This seems to be the main message we've been getting all week. Um, I don't think they're going to be going in there with major threats regarding sanctions or weaponizing the European market, but they're going to explain their positions to China, why the sanctions are in place. As a member of the Permanent Five from the UN Security Council, as a global power, is sort of morally obliged to at least not overtly flout these, um, if not publicly back them. I think that the expectations are pretty managed here. There's not really that much expectation that China's going to come out and condemn Russia publicly. I think that moment has passed. The Europeans see China as essentially trying to swim on both sides of the river as the phrase that I kept hearing this week, where they're on the one hand trying to say that they're neutral and on the other hand um, sort of rhetorically rhetorically backing Russia. I think they're going to call them out on that this morning, going to remind them of their responsibilities, perceived responsibilities as an economic superpower. They're going to remind them of the perilous nature of the global economy the fact that there could be a global famine emanating from this. There are, is an energy crisis. There's a shortage of, of grain and wheat. And China is obviously, you know, uh, really tied up in the global economy. So they're, they're going to try to appeal to the pragmatic nature of uh, the Beijing leadership on this. They see the situation in China as Xi Jinping being in uh, a situation which requires stability ahead of the party congress later in the year, during which he's likely to nail down uh, a third term in office. Ahead of that, they don't see the Chinese wanting to to rock the boat in any great way. Uh, So they'll be sort of appealing to that sort of desire to have stability. They will be uh, warning them that they shouldn't provide, as I said, military support. Finba, you mentioned military support there. You have tweeted out that Anthony Blinken told a gaggle of reporters that there was no evidence of China offering military support to Russia. But is there any further discussion in circles in the EU about either military or financial support from China to Russia? They haven't seen any direct evidence that China is actively providing military support, nor is it actively providing financial support to Russia. However, they have seen certainly formal requests from the Russians to the Chinese for military equipment. As one official told me yesterday, this even included rations. There are, and I quote, intense discussions that the EU has been as evident of between the Russians and the Chinese about financial support. They don't see the Chinese yet in a significant way actively circumventing sanctions. However, this is also something that they will monitor closely. Now, this idea of Chinese neutrality, I don't necessarily think that the EU believes China is neutral. They notice the talking points in, in the Beijing 
backing Russia's claims about NATO's eastward expansion. They do believe that the Chinese are supporting Russia rhetorically, but they do believe there are red lines. If they were to actively provide military support, if they were to provide weapons or to circumvent sanctions or provide support in order to circumvent sanctions, then they see that Chinese claim of being neutral as being totally void. Now, what happens after that? That's that's what we're, we're really wanting to find out. We don't know. Of course, U.S.'s secondary sanctions would almost automatically kick in if there was evidence of China providing sanctions and circumvention, as in transacting with sanctioned entities, the US dollar, and so on. Finbar, there's a lot of discussion over who has leverage over who when it comes to trade between China and the EU. But what are your sources telling you about what the EU wants out of these meetings? What does success look like for Ursula von der Leyen and her EU colleagues? As I said, the expectations are managed. Any commitment from China to not actively side with Russia would be seen as a huge success. They don't expect China to condemn Russia. They understand that would be, I suppose, untenable for for Xi Jinping to go public with anything like that. But there was some reassurance that they were not planning in good faith to help the Russians materially with their invasion of Ukraine, then they'd be happy with that. you know whether or not then that plays out in reality, we we will we will have to see. But you know they're given them an opportunity to state their case, to to sort of lay out their positions, and I think that's that's where the, where they are right now. I don't think that they're going to be as you know. Last week Biden was in Brussels and he was telling the press that uh, you know he'd been reminding Xi Jinping that the, the Chinese economy is far more reliant on the West than it is on Russia. I mean. This is something that the Europeans were keen to impress on us yesterday, that something like 14% of of China's exports go to Europe, 12.5% go to the US, 2.4% go to Russia. Now, the other side of the coin is obviously that China buys an awful lot of Russian energy and commodities, copper, iron ore, aluminium, and stuff like that. But they're they're going to be impressing this point. That's obviously something that the Chinese are not going to be unaware of. But it's just, you know, how do they sort of... um, raise this in a way that incentivizes China China to to perhaps not overtly back Russia. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the jury's out on that, whether or not China has already made up its mind exactly how it's going to play on this one. We don't know. Um, there's going to be a press conference later. These things often don't, don't give us all the answers, but we'll, we'll find out a little bit more at least after they speak with, with Xi Jinping this afternoon. I must say it's really an issue. As somebody who's been in Brussels for a year almost and has been covering this all year round, I have seen the mainstream press is taking a great interest in this. Um, people are now generally aware of the Russia-China situation. There are sort of uh, a lot of the journalists from media throughout Europe who have been at the same press conferences and briefings that me have been asking, well, what about the disinformation being spread by Beijing about US biolabs in Ukraine? What about, uh, you know, Lavrov and Wang Yi meeting in Anhui this week where they essentially reaffirmed the commitments made by Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin on February 4th? This is all not going unnoticed in Europe. Um, this is a big deal here. And I think it is a sort of moment, uh, an opportunity for China to reassure Europe, an opportunity for Europeans to, I guess, make their own deductions on where they believe China stands on this. 
and of course a magnificent opportunity for Xi Jinping to demonstrate his global statesman-like abilities to the rest of the world. Finbar Birmingham will be fast asleep on this side of the world in Hong Kong when you're filing your stories and analysis tonight. We'll be watching that and also watching your extremely busy Twitter feed. Thank you very much and we will speak to you soon. All right. Cheers, John. See ya. Xi Jinping is our veteran diplomacy correspondent on the China desk and there's been a lot happening on that front this week. Jingtao, welcome back. Let's talk about China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi and who he's been meeting with this week. Most importantly, he's met with Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. What do we know about what was said about Ukraine? Thanks, Jared, for having me back. Actually, I think it's quite interesting. It's the first uh, foreign visit for Lavrov since the invasion of Ukraine. And in Lavrov's own words, it was a very difficult time in the history of international relations. And he spoke quite highly of the intensity and intimate nature of the bilateral regular dialogue between China and Russia in the midst of the Ukraine crisis. During the meeting, actually, it's, a, it's not just a bilateral meeting. It's, uh, it happened on the sideline of a pair of multilateral conferences um, Afghanistan. And during the meetings, they thoroughly exchanged views on Ukraine, and they both expressed strong opposition to Western sanctions against Russia, which they said was counterproductive. And according to Russian Foreign Ministry, both sides agreed to deepen their cooperation and speak on global affairs with a united voice. I doubt Beijing would agree with that phrasing. And according to the Chinese readout, while you said China and Russia relations have withstood a new test of evolving international landscape, remained on the right course, and continued to develop resiliently. A Chinese readout quote Lavrov as pledging that uh, Russia is committed to de-escalating the tensions and will continue peace talks with Ukraine and maintain communication with international community. While he defended China's neutral stance on Ukraine as standing on the right side of the history, and said the Ukraine crisis was the outcome of Cold War mentality and block confrontation. Uh, it's a veiled reference to NATO expansion. He also repeated China's support for peace talks and called for de-escalation of tensions without elaborating on what China could do in the process. Cheng Tiao, what's your sense of how Wang Yi and Beijing are positioning themselves here? They mention these words, the right side of history. It seems they're really digging in on support for Russia and repeating those same old buzzwords, Cold War mentality, you know, while ignoring the reality of 10 million refugees in a, in a humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. What's your sense of, is there any change in position or is it really Beijing's doubling down for support for Russia? Actually, I think it's, it's clear that Beijing is uh, rebalancing its approach on Ukraine. Although China's foreign ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin said after the Lavrov meeting that cooperation between Russia and China has no borders, but Chinese Ambassador Qinggang last week has come out and tried to clarify China's approach on Russia, saying that although their friendship is of no limits, but it has bottom lines. And also China is trying to tone down its pro-Russia media coverage. I think the mounting casualties of civilians in Ukraine has weighed heavily on Chinese leaders in this regard. 
and China is trying to express its uh, reservations about a war more publicly in the past few days. Xingqiao, those words, bottom line, just sort of into this discussion about this continued march we've heard of, the relationship with no limits, sounds very interesting. And also perhaps that change, as you mentioned, about China's state media really pushing uh, Russian information, disinformation about the Ukraine war seems quite pertinent. Now, this meeting of Wang Yi and Sergei Lavrov, as you say, came amidst something that really hasn't registered in the Western media this week, and that is Lavrov was in China for a two-day meeting about the economic and humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And it seems every country in the neighbourhood was invited to this meeting except India. Can you tell us what we know about this meeting? Uh, actually, uh, on Ukraine, I think what China is doing is uh, damage control. But on Afghanistan, China is actually scoring points in this regard, especially in this difficult time of uh, US-China relations and its relations with uh, actually entire Western world. New Delhi is uh, bitter about the fact that it was not invited to these Afghan meetings in Beijing. And according to Chinese uh, observers, it's more to do with the border dispute with India and especially Pakistan's stance on the issue. As we know, Pakistan is China's top ally. Last year, China snubbed a similar multilateral meeting on Afghanistan organized by India in November. But then China offered its support for Pakistan for hosting a similar talks on Afghanistan. And Pakistan, as we know, is very sensitive about India's involvement in Afghan-related talks due to their strained ties. And Beijing's move, actually, when you just visited India last week, it's a surprise uh, visit. India's uh, quite vocal about their dissatisfaction about not being invited to the Afghan talks. And according to India observers, it's, uh, it's a deliberate move to contain and to limit India's presence and influence on this topic, very important topic. Zhengtao, just to show how complex things are with geopolitics right now and how Ukraine seems to affect almost every conversation, this meeting about Afghanistan and its humanitarian crisis also coloured by the fact that the Taliban have opposed Russia's invasion. They're involved in this meeting. China's there as well. Can you tell us more about this meeting about Afghanistan this week? Yes, I think it's quite interesting that Taliban has voted twice for the UN resolutions denouncing Russia's invasion. But it's also interesting to see uh, how important the Ukraine crisis figure in relations between the Taliban government with other countries, especially China and Russia. But neither China and Russia has recognized uh, the Taliban government. Their ambition in getting more involved in the Afghan talks is obvious. And for Beijing, I think the Afghan talks in Beijing provides an excellent platform to show that Beijing is trying to build close ties with its neighbors and play a greater role in regional affairs especially on Afghanistan, while continuing its push for the Belt Road initiative. I think it's quite interesting. I forgot to mention just now, Lavrov actually made an India visit on Thursday. It's another attempt for Moscow to, to pull India closer to China and Russia. 
and to secure India's purchase of discounted Russia crude oil, as well as its support on Ukraine in a bit to avoid New Delhi siding with the West. And there are a pair of multilateral meetings on Afghanistan in Beijing on uh, this week. Uh, one is the uh, uh, foreign ministers from seven countries, including Russia, China, Iran, Pakistan, and three other Central Asian countries. They actually issued a call with acting Afghan foreign minister uh, Mutaki for the U.S. to unfreeze Afghan assets held abroad and ease sanctions on the Taliban government. I think the asset thing actually referred to the seven billion in frozen Afghan asset held by the U.S. Also, there is a parallel meeting uh, among special envoys for Afghanistan from China, the United States, and Russia. Uh, U.S. special envoy for Afghanistan, Tom West, participated in the meeting. And Wang Yi met those special representatives uh, in Anhui as well. During the meetings, Wang again urged the U.S. to take practical steps to end unreasonable sanctions and unfreeze Afghan assets. And not surprisingly, one used these meetings to slam the U.S. for the chaos in Afghanistan and admitted Afghanistan still has a long way to go to achieve lasting peace. Zheng Tao, as I understand, Xi Jinping himself sent a message to this meeting. What do we know about that message? Actually, Xi Jinping sent a written uh, message to the meeting, which says Afghanistan is at a critical point of transition from chaos to order. Also, uh, Xi Jinping voiced China's strong support for the Taliban government, which, according to observers, is a strong sign that China wants to get more involved in Afghan affairs. And this week at SCP.com, we've run reports detailing China's great interest in developing copper mines and the natural resources in Afghanistan. We will see what comes of that. But Zheng Tao, these last couple of weeks, we've seen a real surge of diplomacy from Beijing with Wang Yi meeting with nations from Africa, Latin America, Central Asian countries, surprise visit to the Taliban, surprise visit to New Delhi. We hear much of Joe Biden's work to form alliances. Are we seeing a concerted effort by Beijing to shore up its own alliances? Firstly, I don't think uh, alliance is an accurate description of what China is doing, because China, there's no such thing as alliance per se. Apart from Wang Yi's uh, South Asian tour last week, four foreign ministers from Southeast Asian countries are coming to China. They're from Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines, and Myanmar. Actually, Indonesian foreign minister participated in the Afghan talks this week. And also, China is having a summit with EU leaders on Friday. It happened against the background, as you mentioned just now, Biden's renewed support for the Indo-Pacific strategy and his harsh warnings against Putin. For Beijing, neighboring countries have always been uh, its uh, priority in diplomacy, especially after in the wake of the COVID outbreaks and the strained U.S.-China ties. I think the neighboring countries has gained significance, especially in the wake of the Ukraine crisis, because China's ambiguous stance on on the Ukraine crisis has not been fully understood by its neighboring countries. So China's trying to gauge its neighboring countries, Ukraine, while giving its neighbors a chance 
to create China's stance as well. According to some analysts in Beijing, China's ambivalence on the Ukraine crisis actually will affect its image or taint its image among neighboring countries because China's neighbors are worried both about the Ukraine crisis, about the invasion of a sovereign country by a nuclear power. At the same time, they're also concerned about China's assertive foreign policy in the South China Sea and in regional affairs. That's fascinating, Jingtao. That is something that was raised by Dr. Courtney Fung just a couple of weeks ago, the reputational damage that Beijing possibly worried about in its support for Russia in this war against Ukraine. Xi Jingtao, I know you're very busy. Thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate your comments. And of course, we'll read more of your analysis on scmp.com. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Jasmine, one of the SCMP podcast producers. This week's Listening Post newsletter includes some unique podcast reviews. We all know true crime podcasts, but have you listened to a K-pop true crime? We've got a podcast that's about one of South Korea's biggest hip-hop stars and how he got tied up in rumors and conspiracy theories. And as gas prices are surging across the globe, there's been a lot of discussion about electric cars. We've got a podcast special that takes you back to when electric cars were the biggest selling cars on the market, the year 1894. Don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Inside China, taking you into Shanghai and into China's biggest lockdown since the start of the COVID pandemic. That's the Listening Post newsletter. Subscribe at scmp.com newsletter or hit the link in the description. Peter Langan is a senior editor with our China desk based in Tokyo, Peter, we've been trying to get you back on the podcast for the past weeks because there's been some significant revelations in Japan's foreign policy or indeed evolutions. But surely the biggest thing out of Japan that's been buried or lost in all the headlines of the Ukraine war in the past fortnight is that Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has suggested nuclear weapons should be hosted on Japanese soil. Can you tell us more about this? Uh, yes, certainly. I'd like, if I can, first just to zoom out a little bit, just to to give a bit of the context of this, which I think is important to to understand. So, Japan, as we know, is the only country to face a nuclear weapon attack, which was Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. The estimates vary, but as many as a quarter of a million people, mostly civilians, were killed in those bombings, either immediately or in the following months and years, you know, from burns and radiation sickness. So this horror, you know, deeply informed the strong anti-war movements in Japan. And then in the late 1950s led to Japan introducing this so-called three non-nuclear principles, which are no production, no possession, and no introduction of nuclear weapons in the country. So what Mr. Abe appears to have done is raise the question of, is this three non-nuclear principles still relevant, considering the security challenges that Japan now faces? I mean, those challenges that Japan points to is the rise of China, which is, of course, a nuclear power, and it's what's perceived as its military expansionism in Asia. And then we have Russia, another nuclear power, 
that has just invaded Ukraine and also happens to be a neighbor of Japan. So Mr. Abe has addressed what is a taboo question, but the fact that he's now asked it, it's out there. It's a trial balloon, if you like. And of course, Japan's prime minister, Fumio Kishida, has rejected the idea outright, along with a number of other political commentators. But again, that would be expected of Mr. Kishida in that he is the sitting prime minister. And incidentally, Mr. Kishida represents a constituency in Hiroshima, which has obviously a certain influence here. So I think we should see it as Mr. Abe is no longer in office, which gives him more latitude to raise these issues. He's still enormously influential. He heads the largest faction in the governing Liberal Democratic Party. So I think he's pushing the envelope because he can. And he's demanding a, a discussion of the, this taboo issue. But I think additionally here, we have to consider that, you know, Japan is the host of enormous U.S. naval and submarine battle groups, Air Force bomber commands, all operating out of Japanese ports and bases. And the question that's often raised is, well, do those military forces carry nuclear weapons in violation of Japan's three non-nuclear principles. So you can put this another way and think that if nuclear weapons act as the ultimate deterrent, does the US military tell any perceived enemy that, well, you know, before we sort of land in Japan or make port calls, we drop off all our nuclear missiles and bombs somewhere else and kind of leave them there and pick them up later. So, of course, the answer to that is no, they don't do that. So when it comes to the U.S. military in Japan, it's a bit of a a don't ask, don't tell policy. In, In other words, a kind of a strategic ambiguity for any potential adversary. But Mr. Abe, coming back to you know the original question, he's now asking the question, should Japan host nuclear weapons and be open about it? Because he thinks the time's demanded. And that has really put the cat amongst the, the pigeons here. It looks like Shinzo Abe isn't trying to affect policy so much as the paradigm for how Japan thinks of its military. It has, since 1945, its self-defense forces But now it seems it's more a proactive, forward-projecting military idea. And, you know, there's nothing more forward-projecting quite like a nuclear missile. Yes, I think that sums it up quite well. It's the shift in perception is very clearly taking place, which in a sense that's allowed Mr. Abe to, to even raise this. I mean, it's something that would have been unthinkable even just a couple of years ago. So it very much reflects the shift in the environment around Japan and the Japan itself and the threats it perceives. And I think what you're seeing as well is a little bit like what's occurred in Europe with the Ukraine attack. The threat that has now manifested had a unifying effect on Western European nations and some Eastern European, as well as other allies with you know, the US, Canada, Australia, Japan too, this unifying effect. 
it's having the same effect in Japan in terms of, you know, the recognition that the the environment, the local neighborhood is very much changing and Japan has to face that reality. And it's bringing about these discussions and debates about the role of its military, which is substantial. Japan does have a substantial military and naval forces, but as you put it earlier, it's always been seen in this constrained by this self-defense and it's fallen under the umbrella of, of the U.S. protection. But it's it's definitely now a, a different debate based on the rise of China, the threat is perceived, and also now what Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And looking at this shift in foreign policy and defense strategy, how has Russia's invasion of Ukraine influenced discussion about the mainland China-Taiwan issue? and specifically the possibility of Beijing launching military action in Taiwan. How is that discussion playing out in Japan now? Well, I think, again, this takes us back to uh, Mr. Abe. And, um, you know, he is becoming a lightning rod for many of these issues. When, you know, Mr. Abe annoyed Beijing enormously late last year when he started referring to any possible military attack on Taiwan by China would be a military emergency, as he termed it, for for Japan itself. He rather raised the ante of what perhaps Japan might do. I mean, there's always the question, of course, of what would the US do because of its, again, strategic ambiguity over Taiwan. But Japan also made it very clear through Mr. Abe that because of the closeness again of Taiwan to Japanese islands and Japanese territorial interests, it would most definitely be an emergency. So that sense is still is still very much a part of the debate here in Japan, though somewhat overshadowed now because of what has happened in the Ukraine in terms of the focus is on that. But again, it, it feeds into the sense of, well, what if China was to attack Taiwan. I know it's been out there as, as a possibility that China might see the invasion of Ukraine as a, a trigger for some military adventurism of its own in Taiwan. So it the two things are very much feeding into each other. And again, taking us back to that point, being something of a wake-up call in, in Japan for its military posture and definitely solidifying its sense of an alliance with the U.S., well, it's interesting you talk about Japan's alliance with the US and you know the variety of issues it has at the moment. It's got you know, issues with Russia to the north. It's got issues with China and Taiwan. And of course, there's the South China Sea. We've learned this week that Japan is considering holding talks with the Philippines and India later this month. What do you know about these talks and what do we know of what might be on the agenda? Yes, these are the uh, so-called... Uh two plus two talks with uh, defense ministers and so on. So um, I think it just reflects the, you know, there's enormous amount of foreign policy activity going on right now, right? Particularly involving India with the Russian foreign minister just being there. The Chinese foreign minister went in, which was quite a surprise. I mean, India is seen as quite a linchpin over the Ukraine issue because it hasn't 
signed on to sanctions against Russia because it's such a long-standing relationship going back to the non-aligned movement and so on. So there's a lot of courting going on at the moment with India in particular, and Japan is joining in on that. And of course, it brings about, I guess you could say, India is in a, a fairly enviable position in that it's under a lot of pressure, but then it's it's getting these different countries coming in and obviously wanting to build better ties that involves investment, economic relations, and so on and so forth. So I think Japan is moving in on that. They do have a lot of investments in India and they're following up in this like tug of war between the two camps with sort of India in the middle. With the Philippines, of course, the interests are around the South China Sea and the Philippines conflicts with China over ownership of islands. And again, Japan coming in there with offers of aid, military aid as well, and so on. So it's it's all, again, a part of this rather enormous shift we're, we're seeing in the last a year and months or so of how the post-World War II environment is seems to be cracking, shifting. The fissures are changing. The earthquake, if you like. And Peter, you talk about these fissures, these changes that are going on. I think the one thing I haven't mentioned and I've been dying to mention this whole interview is that this week I found out that Japan is at war with Russia, but it's the Second World War. It is the war that never quite ended for Japan and Russia. Can you tell us what has happened this week on that front? Uh, yes, things have turned really quite grim for Japan-Russia relations. And again, to talk about that with the the non-signing of a peace treaty between Russia and Japan and also requires, again, a little zoom out to a bit of history uh, for the context here of this. So it all involves Northern Ireland of Hokkaido. There runs a, a long chain of islands for like a thousand kilometers or so uh, known as the Kurals, and they run up to Russia's Kamchatka Peninsula. And then also just north of Hokkaido is the Sakhalin, Russia's Sakhalin Island, which is actually the country's biggest, biggest island. Now, control of the Kuril Island chain and Sakhalin has seesawed for centuries between Japan and Russia. And in fact, China wants controlled Sakhalin as well. So there's another issue there. But um, the oft-forgotten fact about the World War II is that the Soviet Union didn't actually declare war on Japan until literally a few days before Japan surrendered. So the, the unkind view of that is, well, the Soviets just decided on a massive land grab for what was seen as Japanese-occupied territory. So the Soviets attacked Japanese forces in Manchuria and then pushed them out of the Sakhalin and the Kurils. As part of the Japanese surrender, they gave up all claims to Sakhalin and the Kurils, but they argue that there's four islands just north of Hokkaido, which were not part of that agreement. So this became the block to this peace treaty between Japan and Russia, Japan wants those islands back under its sovereignty. They're quite small, but Russia will not relinquish the control. Now, again, this takes us back to Mr. Abe, 
because when he was prime minister, he spent an enormous amount of political capital trying to resolve this issue. Japan softened its stance in many ways. He met with Russian President Vladimir Putin dozens of times to try and resolve this. The idea being, if they could form a peace treaty, what it does for Russia, it would unleash large amounts of Japanese investment in Russia, in the Far East in particular, which again, Mr. Putin wanted to achieve. And at the same time, it resolves that for Japan, resolves that conflict and leaves it more free, if you like, more latitude to deal with what it saw as the threat in the Southeast, which is China and its its conflicts with China over, again, territorial disputes. But that's all now gone backwards. It's off the table. Russia has cancelled the peace negotiations and the language that's creeping back in is very Cold War. Japan just this week said that those four islands are illegally occupied. And that's language that it hasn't used previously in trying to resolve this dispute with Russia. So, yes, great big step backwards there, a real chill in relations. Um, one further point just to mention here, which is relative to Ukraine, is that Sakhalin has enormous reserves of oil and gas. And Japanese companies, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, and others have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in gas and building plants and LNG terminals and so on. There has been a lot of speculation that they will pull out as part of the sanctions on Russia because of the Ukraine invasion. But basically, Japan has said that's not going to happen. They're not going to do that. And the reason that they're giving, interestingly enough, is that if those Japanese companies were to pull out, China would just move in and take it over because it solves an energy problem for China. You know, the LNG terminals are there already. The platforms are all there. The oil drilling, the gas, it's all there. They've been built and it, it provides a new energy source for China. So Japan says they're not going to pull out of the Sakhalin investments. Once again, we see that nexus of fossil fuel politics and geopolitics coming together. It looks like there's much more to come. And this is fascinating that there's this, dare I say, Eastern Front opening up for Russia in terms of diplomacy and potential conflict over its borders. Peter Langan, it's always educational and illuminating speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for another edition of this week's China Geopolitics podcast. While we sleep our Friday nights on this side of the world, Finbar will be busy filing a piece on the China-EU summit from his. Be sure to check out those pieces and the analysis to come on scmp.com. And of course, follow Finbar on his very active Twitter account at FBirmingham. Don't forget, we'd love you to sign up for our weekly podcast newsletter, The Listening Post. It comes out every Friday night, delivered straight to your inbox. Hope to see you there. I'll leave you now with an old Russian proverb. Peace lasts until the army comes, and the army lasts until peace comes. My name is Jared Watt. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay socially distant, but stay in touch. Bye for now.